Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 151. We'll conclude the book of Zechariah with a brief summary of chapters 12 through 14 and follow with some thoughts about the third place. Chapter 12 begins with an evocative image, the prophet pronouncing a dire prophecy for Jerusalem. Quote, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a bowl of reeling, for the peoples all around. He continues, quote, Judah shall be caught up in the siege upon Jerusalem when all the nations of the earth gather against her. In that day, I will make Jerusalem a stone for all the peoples to lift. All who lift it shall injure themselves. I've fallen and I can't get up. The prophecy continues with some colorful assonance, Timahon, Shigaon, Ivaron, and later, Hadadrimon in the valley of Megiddon, but the theme is the same, great trials and tribulations for Jerusalem, but ultimately victory. But that gladness is tempered with sadness, as the people will begin a period of national mourning where they bemoan the fallen, quote, the land shall wail each family by itself. Chapter 13 pivots to purification, as, quote, in that day fountains shall be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for purging and cleansing. And what will be purged and cleansed? Idolatry, of course, as well as false prophecy. All of which is preparing the people for a renewal of vows, a new covenant between the people and God, but it will come at a high cost. Quote, Throughout the land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall perish, shall die, and one-third shall survive. For the survivors, quote, that third I will put into the fire, and I will smelt them as one smelts silver, and test them as one tests gold. They will invoke me by name, and I will respond to them. I will declare, you are my people, and they will declare, the Lord is our God. Chapter 14 focuses on the fate of Jerusalem, how it is besieged by enemies, the devastation of its buildings, and the exile of its inhabitants. But then God will rise up to utterly destroy the enemy, splitting the Mount of Olives in half in the process. And quote, in that day, there shall be neither sunlight nor cold moonlight, but there shall be a continuous day. Only the Lord knows when, of neither day nor night, and there shall be a light at eventide. In that day, fresh water shall flow from Jerusalem, part of it into the eastern sea and part to the western sea throughout the summer and winter. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day, there shall be one Lord with one name. Oh, and the enemy will be ravaged by a flesh-eating plague and subsequent panic, which will usher in a new period of friendship between Judah and her neighbors. Quote, all who survive of all those nations that came up against Jerusalem shall make a pilgrimage year by year to bow low before the King Lord of Hosts and to observe the Feast of Booths. It's a party you don't want to miss. Quote, any of the earth's communities that does not make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to bow low to the King Lord of Hosts shall receive no rain. Jerusalem will be utterly transformed. Quote, in that day, even the bells and the horses shall be inscribed holy to the Lord. The metal pots in the house of the Lord shall be like the basins before the altar. Indeed, every metal pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all those whose sacrifice shall come and take to these to boil their sacrificial meat in. In that day, there shall be no more traitors in the house of the Lord of hosts. And on that anti-materialist note, here endeth the lesson.
Zechariah concludes his eponymous book with an image of the city of Jerusalem where, quote, In that day even the bells and the horses shall be inscribed holy to the Lord. The metal pots in the house of the Lord shall be like the basins before the altar. Indeed, every metal pot in Jerusalem, etc., etc. And then he closes with this image of the fact that there'll be no more traitors in the house of the Lord of hosts. Jerusalem will become a city suffused with sacredness, where even the bells and the horses will have a sacred inscription, and even the most basic of metal pots will be elevated, and the temple will be free of commerce. Which begs the question, what was going on in the temple during the time of Zechariah, where a market-free temple was something to aspire to? Zechariah was active on the scene during the reign of King Darius, or Dariavus, Darius was the fourth Achaemenid king ruling from 522 to 486 BCE at what would be the height of the Persian Empire. Darius's lands stretched from the Caucasus to the Indus Valley and as far west as Libya. And as the inscription found in the foundations of his palace in Persepolis attests, quote, Darius the great king, king of kings, king of countries, son of Hystapses, and Achaemenid. King Darius says, this is the kingdom which I hold. From the Sake who are beyond Sogdia to Cush, and from the Sindh to Lydia, this is what Ahura Mazda, the greatest of gods, bestowed upon me. May Ahura Mazda protect me and my royal house. Now, Zechariah was not alone in pushing for the building of a second temple. Haggai did as well, and so will Malachi, the twelfth of the Book of Twelve. The returnees had started with laying a foundation stone during the time of Sheshbatsar, Judea's first governor, after the return in 538 BCE, but for economic as well as political reasons, the project stalled. Besides a drought, the indigenous peoples, the Samaritans, sought to thwart the project once their offer of help was rebuffed. The rebuilding was resumed in the second year of the reign of Darius in 521 BCE. The temple project was completed in the spring of 516 BCE, more than 20 years after the return from captivity. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. The final word in Zechariah proclaims, On the day of the Lord, quote, there will be no Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Proclaiming the need for purity in the temple, which would come when God judges at the end of time. However, our friend Sepharia renders the verse as, quote, there will be no traitor with a D in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. In either instance, Zechariah envisions a day when the temple will be pure and unsullied. Which brings me back to the initial question. What was going on in the temple during the time of Zechariah where a traffic and or Canaanite free temple was something to aspire to? There are moments when I think humans in the 6th century BCE were fundamentally different than us. And then there are moments when I think that humans are humans and pride then is the same as pride now, but perhaps faster. And the same could be said for materialism. A human's desire for more stuff was the same then as it is now, but perhaps faster. So I guess to use present-day terms, there seemed to be a Starbucks in Zechariah's local synagogue, and this troubled Zechariah very, very much. Now let's unpack that image. You have the synagogue space, sacred, special, removed from the transactional world of the public sphere, besotted by advertisements and the hurly-burly of commerce. A place where Jews come to separate themselves from the 24-7, wired, perpetually moving world, to pray be sermonized to, and nosh a little before heading back into the world of the everyday. 
contrast this with Starbucks, the ultimate commercialized space, private yet seemingly public, designed ostensibly for gathering, but really used for work and more work. And Don't what... help elect Trump, you egotistical billionaire Go back to getting ratioed on Twitter. Go back to Davos with the other billionaire elite who think they know how to run the world. That's not what democracy Starbucks isn't even a proper coffee shop in the historical sense. The first coffee houses were opened in Istanbul over five centuries ago. They served a variety of functions, an informal public space, an open to public office, a performance space, a place for sharing information and passing on gossip, a place to unwind and escape the hardships of work and family, a place to come and play games. And they only served coffee. The Ottomans, it could be said, invented coffeehouse culture, and as is their way, the Europeans came and stole it. For the Turks, the coffee house is what Ray Oldenburg would describe as a third place. Ray Oldenburg's 1989 book, The Great Good Place, breaks it down. There is the first place, the home and those that one lives with. There is the second place, that's the workplace where people may actually spend most of their waking hours. And then there is the third place. Oldenburg argues this is the actual anchor of the community and the community life, which facilitates creative interaction. He describes the third place as follows. It's free or inexpensive to enter. It has food and drink, though that's not required. It's highly accessible, that it's within walking distance for many. It's a hangout for regulars. It's welcoming and comfortable and, quote, a place for new friends and old. Since the publication of the book, other scholars have added to Oldenburg's list, arguing that the third place is also neutral ground. The people who go there have no obligation to be there. It's a leveler. The third place puts no importance on a person's social status. It's also a place to talk, but it's not necessarily the only thing going on there. It's homey. It's a home away from home with a low-key vibe that's not snobby or pretentious. So Starbucks is generally free or inexpensive to enter, unless, of course, you're black. I, what did they get called for? Because there are two black guys sitting here meeting me? Yes, I did. Well, what did they do? What did they do? Did someone tell me what they did? They didn't do anything. I saw the entire thing. They didn't. What did they do? Nothing. Yeah, it has drink, but as everyone will tell you... It also comes in pumpkin-flavored. If you'd prefer that to the wet cigar, boiled asphalt flavor that occurs naturally. And their food selections are increasingly odd, designed more to extract profit than provide proper nutrition. Starbucks is definitely accessible. At its peak in 2016, it had 24,395 locations across the world. And in some localities... Multiple branches serving up hot cups of battery acid. I mean Pike's Place, within eyesight of each other. But is it a place where everyone knows your name? Well, maybe. I guess that would depend on the location. At the Starbucks near my abode, there seems to be low turnover, and the baristas do establish relationships with some of the customers. But I think it's not too hot a take to say that Starbucks is not the platonic ideal when imagining what a coffee house is or could be. It's probably not even close. And if we imagine the local neighborhood independent coffee shop, we might come closer to what Oldenburg and subsequent urban sociologists conceived of in their research. But if we take an even bigger leap, the modern synagogue sounds a lot like an ideal third place for Jews. Free or inexpensive to enter? Has food or drink? Is highly accessible, that is, within walking distance for many? Is a hangout for regulars? Is welcoming and comfortable and, quote, a place for new friends and old? 
Neutral ground, as in the people who go there have no obligation to be there. A leveler, the third place putting no importance in a person's social status, a place to talk, but it's not necessarily the only thing going on there. And finally, homey, oh, home away from home with a low-key vibe that is not snobby or pretentious. Well, if the synagogue is a good, nay, a great third place, why wouldn't it harmonize with the other third places? Couldn't the synagogue become the cineplex? inhabiting a shared space with other third places? Why couldn't a synagogue host a coffeehouse space in its lobby? Indeed, if you look at how space is being used in the present, it makes perfect sense. Couldn't we integrate synagogues better into the streetscape, embedding it into the neighborhood and the fabric of daily life for the community? Couldn't we take advantage of existing spaces which were constructed for one purpose and make them multi-purpose? This is especially critical, as many of these single-purpose spaces are emptying out at a considerable rate. I understand Zacharia's hesitance. I don't want a shopping mall in my synagogue. I don't want business being transacted 10 meters away from a sanctuary. But I also don't want my sanctuaries to sit empty either. We need synagogues, but we also need to think of synagogues differently. Not as a place for a single purpose, silent prayer, song, worship, but as a place for Jews to gather in community. If that involves some coffees, so much the better. Make mine a medium flat white. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 152 when we begin and complete the final book in the Book of Twelve with Malachi chapters 1 through 3.